The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're your nation's public radio source for information, news, advice, techniques, and, of course, interviews with the experts to help you better understand and grow your own real estate investing business. And today, y'all are just not going to believe this. I have the expert of experts, a guy who, to my knowledge, has never been on a radio show in the United States of America who does webinars only sort of begrudgingly because what he loves is real estate and teaching people real estate. His name is Pete Fortunato, he graduated from high school, got straight into the real estate business, according to his bio, so that he could be self-employed until he could be unemployed. Ten years later, after college, his own real estate portfolio had gotten large enough that he was able to fund his lifestyle strictly through his real estate investments. He is a libertarian, he is a capital, and he is a creative deal genius. He is joining us from his home near Tampa, Florida. Welcome, Pete. Hi, Vina. How are you? Are, are you okay? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I'm, I've got the iPhone sitting here, and I've pushed the button for speakerphone, and I hope all is well. Well, well ho- hopefully that will work. We uh, we uh, will let you know if if you're if you're not coming through super clearly. Um, Pete, you're going to be here in Cincinnati, uh, August seventh. You'll be speaking at the Cincinnati RIA meeting, and then on August ninth and tenth, you're doing a two day seminar here, which we very much appreciate. Um, It's going to be on sort of how to do deals that maybe don't look like deals right away and how to how to do creative things with them. And if on the radio, we had the ability for you to show overheads and write down numbers, we could go through some really neat deals. But radio sadly does not lend itself to that sort of thing. So I really wanted to talk today more about your your sort of um, your sort of general philosophy and how real estate works in your world. And I wanted to start with uh, some people that you like to talk about because you're, you're very, you're very focused on who are the people in any given transaction and what do they want. And I've heard you use these three terms and I would like you to talk about who they are and what's important about them. Starters, estate builders and enders. Okay. Well, 
Uh, first of all, rather than um, talk about me as an expert, I think you just talk about me as a, an extremely opinionated guy. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about my opinions, and my opinion is that real estate does not have a value that is absolute. It has very personal values, and it's in talking to people and discovering what makes them uncomfortable that you discover opportunities. Well, so that means in each marketplace, you want to look and say, who are the players? Well, a starter investor, I think of as a young person, but they may simply be young to the investment field. And they may just be now, even though older in years, be coming to the point where they're a starter investor trying to acquire enough capital to set them free, or at the very least, uh, to supplement a, a retirement income. And so those starters generally bring energy and optimism and a minimal amount of funds uh, or assets to the deal. Some starters bring extremely good credit, and some starters need the tax benefits available in real estate. But the starters generally bring energy and optimism and hope and, and time and hard work to a deal. Okay. Then they, they grow into the state builders. And that means they've finally got some assets, but not yet enough to live on. And the estate builder has different assets that they might trade for uh, assets that they like better. They are better connected. And so many times they can find you that manager that you need, or they can find you the, the funds that you need or the rehabber that you need. And the estate builder has tenants um, who are providing income, though not yet enough for them to be free, they're on their way. Then we get to what I call the enders. Now, my friend John Chubb really tells me that that's an improper name for them, and he objects every time I call him an ender. <laughs> but I'm not talking about ender like end of life. I'm talking about ender meaning they've finished the journey to having enough assets. And now, while they may indeed trade assets for some that they like better or to, to do some estate planning, the ender has enough assets so that their entire lifestyle can be funded on the income generated by their assets. So I look at each marketplace and look for those and expect to find those three parties in that marketplace. Mm -hmm. Now, in the in the the paradigm of any given deal why is it important to know whether you're dealing with a starter or an estate builder or an ender and how would they come into play for each other okay well i i'm an estate builder really and an ender estate builder but because i've got children and grandchildren and i like nothing better than interfering in their lives I spend time still estate building for others. So I am a trader. I will exchange two or three little houses for a bigger house. Now, in this marketplace, that often uh, is a possibility or an opportunity to help somebody who's got a big house uh, with, a, with too much debt, too much house to take care of, and I can trade that person two or three houses. Now, just to give you a quick example, uh, a friend of mine named Chet had a, a big three-bedroom, three-bath house, and he and his wife lived there alone. 
I traded him three little rental houses for that one big house. So I traded pride of cash flow for pride of ownership. I got a much nicer house, nicer neighborhood, but I gave up uh, $1,700 a month in income in exchange for $1,100 a month in income with a, a better house. I consolidated and had less work for me. Now, fit my ender status and my estate building status. Um, but for, for Chet, who was just retired, he moved out of an expensive house to maintain, moved into one of the three little houses and rented the other two to give him income to supplement his retirement. Now, as it turned out, his wife totally hated living in that little house I traded her. So they moved out and rented all three houses and just moved into a condo, which they rent and still live in. But that exchange, I can make. Well, what happens is people come to me all the time, and they find those kinds of deals. And they're just starters. I met actually at McDonald's this morning with two young men who are, who are starters. They're aggressive. They're great young guys. And if they had put that deal together for me, many people, the older guy, Chet, he would have been afraid or may have been afraid of managing those houses. And they would have had the opportunity by knowing me and by knowing Chet to put that deal together and then insulated Chet from the management responsibilities by leasing or lease optioning or seller financing those houses from Chet to give him income without work if work was uh, a problem. So knowing the managers might have enabled me to make that deal were Chet afraid of the thrill of management, which many people are. So knowing who all the different people are help a great deal. Um, another young man that was buying a house um, out of an estate of probate uh, bought the house for $55,000 and gave a note. The estate, of course, with nine heirs, uh, it was really a difficult negotiation dealing with a committee of nine. So one of my friends who was an ender who had a substantial pension plan bought that $55,000 note given by the young man who was acquiring his first rental house and paid the estate 45000 which was $5,000 per heir. they rather have the cash. My friend who was the ender, his pension plan would rather have the income and the yield that was made up of the interest on the note combined with the discount on the note. And the young man who bought the house bought a real nice three-bedroom, two-bath, one-car garage house in a good neighborhood for $55,000 with no money down. None of them could have gotten what they wanted without the others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, very good. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to start taking what I'm sure is going to be many, many questions for Pete Fortunato on creative deal making. If you've got a deal out there that you're this close to, no, to to being able to put together, but you can't quite take it the last step, those would be really good kinds of questions to ask of Pete today. 877-772-9658 is the number to call. Uh, you can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and my guest today, believe it or not, is Pete Fortunato. Every time I say that name to folks who've never been to one of his seminars, they say, I've 
I've heard of him. I've heard he's really good. What What's he all about? And the answer to that what's he all about question is, um, I don't know, what do you want to talk about? 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com with your questions. Uh, what, uh, what we're using him for today is talk about uh, sort of creatively how does one put deals together by understanding what it is the other person wants and needs and finding not just the cash and the credit that we always talk about but the people who can make that deal work for everybody and pete i I think it's it's not unusual for you in your own business to have two or three or four separate people taking different parts of the deal it's not just you and the seller oh it's 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 very you it's very usual to have more than two people involved in a deal and that's just not me that's the whole world you very rarely find a two-party deal all right would you like to expand on that at all well yeah i mean when you sell a house you sell it to a buyer who doesn't usually have a hundred thousand dollars in their pocket what happens is you've got a buyer who really wants that house and they want the use of that house for their family to enjoy it. And you have to go out and find a seller who carry the financing to enable them to buy it without financing. But if you, if you don't have that educated a seller or a seller um, who has any kind of a, a tax issue or an income uh, requirement or just doesn't have the imagination to go and make a good deal, then you go and you find a lender. And that lender doesn't want the house, but he does want income and he does want security. And so he will trade cash for a note from the buyer who will then use the cash to get the deed to the house that he can move his family into and then give a mortgage to the lender. Without that third party, the catalyst who was the lender, no deal would have happened. It wasn't a two-party deal. Now, with me, I'm a buyer of properties to rent, and if I made through that same made it through that same uh, dance of death with a lender, and I bought the property, borrowed money from a lender, gave the cash to the seller, got the deed from the seller, and gave a mortgage, my next catalyst who I need is a tenant who will pay me enough money for the use of the house, so I can afford to take care of that house and pay the lender who lent me the money to buy the house in the first place. So that would be a four-party transaction in my mind. Now, now that I'm old and lazy, I don't want to do the management anymore, so there'd be yet another party who'd be a manager who I'd give some of the income to take the burden of the work off my shoulders. Now, there's five players in that one simple deal. It was a deal where somebody actually went and borrowed the money and just paid cash for the house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now let's let's talk about a word you just used like four times in that explanation. Um, catalyst. Catalyst. Yeah. Catalyst. What 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 do you what do you mean when you say catalyst? Because you used it to describe the tenant. You used it to describe the the yep. note buyer. You used it to describe everybody yeah. in that deal. The catalyst is a third party who brings something to the deal that enables the deal. He's not the buyer or the seller, but. For example, in many deals, you've got an exchange where I deed you a house in Florida for a fourplex in Cincinnati because I want the income from the fourplex. 
And you say, gee, Pete, I'd like to have, uh, I'd like to move the fourplex, but I don't want to own a house that's a thousand miles from home. So if I find a buyer for that house, that buyer would be a catalyst to enable you and me to make the exchange because you could sell the house to him and it simply have turned your fourplex into either cash or paper. But the buyer in that instance would be the catalyst who we would use uh, to enable us to make our exchange. The lender was the catalyst who enabled the buyer to buy when he didn't have the cash to buy the house. The tenant is the catalyst who provides me the income so I can make the mortgage payments. But I, I'm defining a catalyst as a third party who helps to put a deal together. At, at our meeting the other day, uh, one of the young uh, starters needed a pickup truck. And uh, one of my friends had a pickup truck that he was willing to sell for $5,500. The catalyst uh, in that deal was me. Because a young buyer gave a note for the truck, gave a promise to pay. And my IRA bought that promise to pay, giving the seller of the truck the cash he wanted. Mm-hmm. If, without me, that deal wouldn't have happened because they, they, the seller of the truck was looking for cash to use the down payment, and he didn't have... Uh, he, he didn't look and make a deal and offer the truck as part of the down payment to the seller of the house he was buying. Mm-hmm. And it is so often that folks who sort of don't think this way about if if I don't have it and the other guy doesn't have it, who does have it? And it's so common for deals to get stuck at... He wants he wants fifty five thousand for the house. I want to give him fifty five thousand dollars for the house, but I need to give it to him in payments, and he doesn't want to take payments. So I mm-hmm. hope that I hope that the the listeners out there are hearing the uh, addition here of something that that most people don't talk about and don't think to do, which is all right. Who will take payments? <laughs> we need fifty five thousand dollars, and we need someone who will take payments on fifty five thousand dollars. Who is that person? Right, and now I'm, I'm doing a deal actually right today. I got off the phone right in time to, to talk with you where I have someone who's been offered $100,000 cash for his house. He doesn't want to take 100000 cash for his house because if he takes 100000 cash, he's going to end up with eighty after he pays the taxes. He wants $600 a month income to supplement his income. His income. Well... If he puts the 80000 in the bank, the banks around here may go as high as 1%. So with 1%, that 600 a month eats up his principal, his $80,000, very quickly. And he runs out of income in 10 years. Instead... He took a 6% 30-year note from me and did an installment sale, which enabled him to get $600 a month for 30 years instead of for 10, and to avoid paying the tax except as principal is paid into him on the note that I gave him. And so the tax benefit that we created for him and the the longevity of the income we gave him made that deal work. If I hadn't bought the house 
from him, he would that buyer would never have gotten that house because the man would never have sold it and taken cash and paid the taxes and put it in the bank and got 1%. Mm-hmm. He knew better than that, and he wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So in that scenario, he got what he wanted. How did you get what you wanted out of that? Well, first, I got the house, which I, and I, I'm very happy with the house. But he didn't, he didn't want to cost the buyer who happened to be his tenant the house. Mm-hmm. So I agreed that I would buy the house, giving him a $100,000 note, and then I would sell it to the tenant and take the 100000 cash from the tenant. Mm-hmm. But now, so when the it now, paid, now it sounds like paid, there's a $100,000 note hanging out there with a, a sold house behind it. That's, that's correct. So now I'm going to take the 100000 cash and pay off a mortgage at 8% on one of my houses and give the seller a mortgage on that house as collateral for the 100000 Mm-hmm. So what it enabled me to do was essentially refinance the house and reduce my rate from 8 to 6. Mm-hmm. See, listeners, so many pieces. Pete got a, effectively got a refi on an 8% loan to a 6.5% loan. The person that he's paying does have a secured mortgage. It's just not against the house that he thought he was selling, and the buyer got his house. I know you've got questions, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Pete, two other terms that I have heard you use that I'd like you to talk about, managers and speculators. Okay, well, uh, if you look at property, property has different kinds of cash flow. The cash flow that a manager is expecting, in, in my eyes, is the cash flow in excess of operating expenses and debt service. And so that is essentially an annuity. Let's say, for the sake of an example, $200 a month. Now, a business person, a speculator, he's not at all happy with annuity with $200 a month. If he can buy that self-same house, he'll sell it and take a $10,000 profit as his cash flow, where the manager, who's an investor, We'll say, I'm not taking a $10,000 profit. I'm going to enjoy $200 a month in cash flow, and I'm going to manage it better so I'll even build on that cash flow. So you've got two different kinds of people, and those people who want income in the form of cash flow or an annuity are different people who will like different things versus the, the speculator who buys and sells. And the other thing is that the speculators typically are not at all sensitive to taxes, even though they should be. They're used to buying, selling, and paying horrific taxes. And so they can be the fall guy. They can be the guy who will sell, take that cash, and suffer the taxes, where an investor can be the guy who will exchange in the property and hold it for the production of income for generations. Very good. We're going to take a quick break, after which we are going to take some questions here from George and from Anita. We'll also take your question at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and I'm talking today to Pete Fortunato, 
who loves nothing better than to ask than to answer questions. So if you have any question about anything we've talked about, any deal you're in the middle of, anything you'd like to know about real estate, investing, notes, etc., particularly of the creative variety, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send us an email to askvina at gmail.com, as did George. Now, Pete, George says, well, you asked for difficult deals, and this may just be one that's impossible, but I wanted to run it past Pete and see what his take on it was. I have a seller who desperately wants to sell an out-of-town property that is here in Cincinnati. The payoff on his loan is $47,000. It's at five and a quarter percent, and the payment is six sixty dollars a month with 15 years left to run. Even if I'm making payments, I don't want to pay more than $27,000 for this property in this area, in this condition. The tenants pay $800 a month. He doesn't have $20,000 to bring to the closing. Any genius solutions, or is this just a dead deal? Well, uh, there's nowhere near uh, enough information yet to say it's a dead deal. What happens is, who holds the mortgage? With that party who holds the mortgage. I'm thinking this is a bank. I'm thinking yeah, this is a... if it's an institution, then you got no thinking people on the other end of it. So it becomes very difficult. Um, and and it, that surely makes it harder. But I might trade the man something and let him take his debt with him if it was a local bank that knew him. But in this case, since this man sounds so terribly... Um, Price sensitive. He sounds like that speculator we talked about. Mm-hmm. But he want, doesn't want to buy it for more than twenty-seven because he wants to sell it and make a profit. And unless he stays in that twenty-seven range, he can't. Um, it may simply be that instead of closing on the deal for himself, he might want to assign that contract, assuming that subject to the mortgage doesn't scare somebody, or assuming that. Uh, he can find somebody who'd like to have a rental property. If it rents for $800 and it's got um, a mortgage on it uh, at 5% that's long-term without a balloon, it might be something that a manager would acquire where a speculator who planned to flip it couldn't acquire it at the price because the person who is a manager is not looking at price. He's looking at does it cash flow and will it ultimately allow the tenant to pay off the note in, in favor of the owner of the property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it is a 15-year left-to-run property, and given a payment of 661 it had to have been a 30-year loan to start with, yeah. or, the, or the payments don't make any sense. So the 47-2, although that that may actually be above value. Uh, the the neighborhood that he's referencing here, I'm familiar with it. That and man, a fully fixed up rental in that neighborhood would be hard pressed to sell for forty seven thousand dollars. But it should pay down pretty fast at this point. The, the, well, that's what it sounds like. See, I, I bought a house that had a three hundred and fifty dollar a month uh, negative cash flow, but it was paying down a thousand a month in principal. So I paid three fifty in negative cash flow. The tenant paid six fifty of it, and I ended up in simply in, in less than nine years with a free and clear property, which today is rented for fifteen hundred dollars a month. And so I did suffer the negative, but I did it on purpose. So I would simply look at it 
Now, the neighborhood frightens me. If, if, I, if you feel that way, that may not be a neighborhood that would be an easy enough property for me to rent. And so that might not work for me. Mm-hmm. This is a neighborhood where the property would, would probably be very easy to rent. The question would be, is it going to be still renting for the same amount in 15 years and worth the same <laughs> amount in 15 years? And the answer is maybe... Yeah. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. so, so uh, the long-term um, outlook for the asset makes a difference in, in what kind of deal you will do as well. Sure. And then the other thing, he may just not buy the property, but may indeed create a sandwich lease where he leases the property, creating a cash flow for himself with or without the option to buy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's got an out-of-town owner. So management of that kind of property at a distance has got to be a, a, a very, very burdensome uh, problem for people. That uncomfortable circumstance, see, I guarantee you if that owner lived right in the neighborhood, he would be less concerned than he is if he's living 500 miles away. And so it's possible if it's just a simple sandwich lease uh, opportunity where you lease the property for 80% of what the tenants pay you, and you created an income stream for yourself, and you may or may not ever buy the house. Anita has a question. Uh, she says that she listened in on the webinar that you did the other day for Cincinnati Rhea, and she says, I'm unable to figure out whether Pete is a bigger fan of rental properties or of notes. Can he discuss the pros and cons of property versus paper? Sure, property is always better. Now, that's my view. So if you're trading with me, I'm going to take property. But I don't mind carrying paper a bit, and I use paper a lot to buy property. When I acquire paper, I acquire it on purpose, and the purpose is to provide me with income or to get rid of a property that I'm very disappointed in the way that it, it's performed for me or it's aimed at trading the paper for some other property. I took a $100,000 note for a house I didn't want to give up this year. The reason was because the guy, another guy who I owed $100,000, was willing to accept the note that I took for the house as payment in full of the money I owed him. Mm-hmm. So I, I traded my house to Joe, for a $100,000 note, I took the $100,000 note and paid Andy the $100,000 I owed him. And so I was able to pay off a debt I had using a house I had, and I have extra houses. I didn't have an extra $100,000. Mm-hmm. And so I used paper. But that said, I know a lot of people who who have a lot of property and built their net worth with property who are now very happy managing a paper portfolio that my my uh, warning with regard to the paper is that when someone's paying you whether it's paper or real estate it's a really nice feeling to just have that income coming in on a regular basis but when someone stops paying you in real estate you have some kind of a dispossessory action you have to take an eviction which may take weeks or months depending on where you are but if they stop paying you and start damaging the property and you're, you've given up title, the foreclosure process 
is much longer. And if at the end of that foreclosure process you ended up with the property back, you may still have a tenant that you have to dispossess. And so you're further away from being able to protect yourself when things go bad. But I very commonly hold paper, use paper. Um, another example was when my children were young, I took my 33 houses that I had and boiled them down to 22 houses and $300,000 worth of notes and mortgages. And I spent the income from the notes and mortgages, so I had free time to spend with my kids. <laughs> and when, in 1995, when the kids were all launched, that $300,000 mortgage portfolio had, had burned up, and it, the balance on it was 85000 I'd spent 215000 plus all of the interest just on living so I could spend time with my kids. Mm-hmm. And you didn't, now, this you didn't... wasn't all I had. Mm-hmm. I had the other property. So the property made up for the amortization loss in the notes. Mm-hmm. But in 95, when I no longer needed the income, the income left in the notes at that time was $1,450 a month. And I traded that $85,000 uh, collection of notes to a, an 80-year-old gentleman for his house. He was moving out of the house and moving in with his uh, son and daughter-in-law and grandkids. He was thrilled to have $1,450 a month uh, more income, and I got a very nice free and clear house. Now, that rent, the house only rented for, 17, uh, for $795, but I still have the house. I watched it go from... When I bought it for 85, I watched it go to about 229, then I watched it go back down to 70, and now it's worth about a hundred and a quarter. And I don't care; it's a nice house in a nice neighborhood, and it's still rented. Right now, it's rented for 1250 a month. So I didn't mind holding the notes. I enjoyed the notes. I spent the money while it came in. I enjoyed earning the interest. And then, when I no longer needed it, I traded back into real estate, which won't run out. Mm-hmm. And as w- the paper does. And which is a lot tougher to spend. Yeah, I've had a I've had a difficult time trying to trade equity for groceries at the store. Yeah. So yeah, sort of a sort of a forced savings plan there in a way. Uh, Pete, we yeah. need we need to take one last break. Uh, you're going to enjoy this because after the break, we have a request from a listener for the lawnmower story. So be prepared for that. If you have a question for Pete, you might have one last chance to get it in here at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Pete Fortunato, who will be the keynote speaker at the August 7th Cincinnati RIA meeting, which uh, is a guest night. So anybody can just walk in the door, say I hear about or heard it about it on real life real estate and get in with no guest fee. In addition to that, he is teaching a two day seminar here in Cincinnati for Cincinnati RIA on August the 9th and 10th. We have folks uh, scheduled to come to this from all over the region. The one that I've seen that is farthest away is coming from Minnesota which is an 11-hour drive from here. I assume they're going to fly in, but uh, something that lots of folks are excited about because Pete doesn't get up here to the Midwest a whole lot to teach seminars, and his events are always very interesting, and they're always new. This will be the third time I've taken this class, and I bet it's a different class than it was the first two times I took it because it was was different the second time than the first time. (laughs) 
That might have been because yeah. I'm doing different deals. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it is different. It's not. It's not just that I'm different. So I'm hearing different things each time. It's. Uh, it's. It's really different. Very good. Uh, you can get more information about uh, the location of the RIA meeting as well as the Saturday seminar at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's Cincinnati R E I A dot com. Now, Pete, true story. I just got an email from Will in Lexington, Kentucky. It says. Pete, my first exposure to you was when I was in my late 20s, and you told a story about a kid and a lawnmower that made me understand capitalism in a way that I had never understood it up until then. I am sitting here by the radio with my 11-year-old daughter, and I would like you to tell it to her. Okay, well, I'd be happy to tell it. I'm a big believer uh, in capitalism, and I'm a big believer in the fact that uh, you have to dream a dream before you can make the goals that turn into plans that turn into actions. And so in this particular instance, what, what, he, what Will was talking about is when I do the acquisition class, I'm usually talking to younger people, starters, as we talked about earlier, and I'm trying to explain to them the possibility of having assets provide them with income rather than having to give up their time. So... Uh, I asked a principal, and, and uh, the first time I did this was 1986. I got a, a principal of a local school uh, who was naive enough to allow me to address a, uh, an assembly of kids in the elementary school. And the, the assembly was primarily uh, fourth and fifth graders who I was speaking to. And so what I did is I asked them if any of them were interested in money. And, well, you can imagine that 10- and 11-year-old kids were more than interested in money. They very enthusiastically raised their hands and waved and yelled, yes, me. And so the next thing I asked them was, how do you get the money? And sadly, every one of them said, I get the money by doing my chores, by washing windows, by cleaning the house. Every single answer involved work. And... It's in failing to understand that capital provides income much more efficiently than does work that kids fail to dream the dream of getting enough assets to get free. So I said, well, listen, if you guys really enjoy uh, making money that much and you're willing to work for it, how many of you would like to make $15 by doing my lawn? Well, I mean, I just had a normal little 60 by 100 lot around my yard, and the kids knew me because I lived in the neighborhood, and several of the kids said they'd love to do that. And so I said to them, well, now here's the deal. I'd be happy to have you come and do my lawn for $15, but recognize when you get to my house, you have no assets, so you're going to have to get down on your hands and knees and pick the grass to an even one and a half inches. How long do you think that will take? And, of course, kids being kids, they go, oh, it'll take all day. And, you know, you don't want to tell them, no, it'll take a month. But I, I just let it go. And I say, well, okay. So let's assume you do it, you do a nice job, and I pay you the $15. Now, if instead of spending the whole $15, you spend $7 and a half of it, and you take the other $7 and a half, and you buy a set of shears, the next time you come to do my lawn and you have the shears with you, 
how much time will it take you to do my lawn and earn $15? Well, the kid said, oh, six hours. And so I said, well, you see, because you had an asset and your labor, you were able to earn the $15 in much less time because your capital was years and your labor, you on your hands and knees, uh, could together earn $15 in a shorter period of time. Now, let's assume you do it 10 straight times, and at the end of the 10 times, you've actually saved $50. What could you buy? And the kids said, oh, I could buy a lawnmower. And I said, well, now with a lawnmower, how long would it take you to do my yard? And they said, oh, one hour. And I said, well, that's right, See, With more capital, the combination of the lawnmower, your capital, and you, can earn the same $15 in just one hour. Now, I said, I know many of you have younger brothers and sisters. In the event that your younger brother or sister wanted to earn $15, you could have them come over and they could mow my lawn, and you could let them use your lawnmower, and they could earn $15. And all the kids said, uh-uh. I said, what do you mean, uh-uh? And they said, oh, no, we'd want to see our little brothers and sisters on their hands and knees picking the grass. <laughs> and I said, well, instead of that, perhaps, if you let them take the lawnmower and pay, and pay you half of the $15, now your brothers and sisters can earn $7 a half for their labor in one hour, and the lawnmower could make $7.50 for you while you were able to stay home and play. And that story to those fourth graders who are now in their 30s still comes back to me, and I hear the people who've told me how much they appreciated that because they saw the asset providing the income and the free time that it enabled them to have. That was a very effective story in, in 86 when I did it, and I think it still is. Mm-hmm. And it it brings the term capitalism back to its actual meaning, he who owns the capital, as opposed to its current meaning, yeah. he who is greedy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's just that, you know, you got to realize we're, we're into microeconomics. I'm sitting down with a couple who have a problem. I'm sitting down with a buyer who want, who needs a house and has certain assets, we're really and truly scheming together to make a deal. That's what capitalism is, people helping one another. Cronyism is macroeconomics where people pay for exclusivity, for monopoly, and the government just sells that monopoly to people. So we're not a, a capitalist society. But we are, as people, able to do deals as capitalists to the great benefit of men. Excellent. Wow, I almost wish it was the end of the show, because that would be a great place to end the program. But we have, we have five more minutes, and we do have a couple of more questions. 
that have that have come in from listeners. Uh, I have one here from Linda here in Cincinnati. She says, Pete, I am definitely what you would call a starter. I have not even done my first deal yet, but I'm fascinated with this trading and exchanging you're doing. The thing that I don't understand is when you say exchanging, are you talking about the 1031 exchanges I've seen, or are you talking about something else? Uh, when I'm talking about exchanging, I'm talking about doing business, commerce. Commerce is all about exchange. <clears throat> People do business and are seeking something. People do business because they perceive a lack, so they give up something to cure that lack. And so exchange is giving up something you value less for something you value more. 1031 exchange is simply a tax uh, term and a way of doing business uh, that developed because when people traded a single-family house for a farm, the government couldn't figure out how in the world do we tax that. And they said, well, someday one of them will sell and we'll tax the fence. So that that's a tax issue, and that's different than a person. Well, I'll give you another quick example. A young man... And Ken had a Mustang 5.0, really, really uncomfortable car. And when he was single, this car was of great value to him. He had since married, and now they had a baby. The, The fastback Mustang, Shelby, whatever it was, was useless to them as a car. But it was really good as a down payment. And so I had them trade the car as a down payment, get an FHA loan, and buy the house. And all I had to do was present that opportunity to his wife to have her understand that they were better off with a house than they were with that Shelby Mustang. And that was why the deal happened. They liked what they got more than they liked what they gave up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I bought a house with seller financing here from a couple, and I offered them for their equity in the house. I offered them $5,000 and $5,000 every Christmas for the next five Christmases. And I said, now, in the event that I could arrange to get $5,000 today and then $5,000 every Christmas for the next five years, is there any reason why you wouldn't consider that? And Dick said, no, there's no reason I couldn't consider that. I wouldn't consider that. And his wife said, no, there's no reason we will do that. And she wanted the $5,000 every Christmas. And it's defining the benefits in people terms rather than in dollars that makes it work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it's only because the dollars are exchangeable and the, that they can act as a conduit to take you from what you like less to what you like more. My very first house I acquired because the man was transferred, and the transfer took him 1,400 miles from his home. The house didn't get less valuable. The house was still a great house, but it didn't fit him. And so in that particular instance, I was able to acquire a great house because the ownership's life had changed and as their life changes they need different things a common deal i get here in florida i'm sure you get it everywhere today is i'll talk to somebody and say why would you sell a nice house like this and they'll tell me that 
the doctor told them they can't handle stairs, and they've got a two-story house, and they raised their children there. Well, now, when I hear that right away, I look and say, in the event that I could give you a condo in an elevated building, is there any reason why you wouldn't rather that? And so that's an exchange. It may or may not be a 1031 exchange, but it's an exchange of property I like less for property I want more, and it's an exchange of property they like less, has less use for them, for one that is more useful for them. The most common exchange that I give is promises. I buy more properties with promises than anything else. And the promise is as simple as saying, I promise to pay $500 a month for the next 180 months, and I'll give you that promise in exchange for that deed. That's a very common exchange. And unfortunately, with that, we must wrap up the show today. But if you'd like to hear lots more, come to Cincinnati Rhea on August the 6th. Listen to Pete speak at the main meeting and then check out the seminar on the 9th and 10th. More information at CincinnatiRhea.com. That's Cincinnati, R-E-I-A dot com. Pete, thanks so much for sharing with us today. Lots of great information. And we'll see you in Cincinnati in a couple of weeks. We'll also see we'll also see you listeners next week when we come back with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>